What's up, everyone? It's Matt and Leslie back at Table 40. Uh, today, we're honored to have a great friend, former teammate, um, just all around awesome guy. Scott Leinbrink is joining us. Scott pitched in the big leagues, uh, I think, for 12 years. Is that right, Scott? That's about years. right, yeah. Okay, all right. And currently uh, working with Water Missions uh, Ambassador. He basically is working closely with Water Missions and, and doing a lot of great things for people and, and delivering them clean water. And we'll get into that later. But Scott, thanks for so much for coming on. I think I wanted to start off with kind of getting into just kind of like the current state of Major League Baseball and what you're as former players kind of, it seems odd to me, but I was going to get your take on like trying to play and to perform in front of no fans and trying to kind of the adrenaline factor that, that fans provide and kind of the odd state of you know, the pandemic, obviously everybody's life is, is different, but like when I watch games on TV and I'm looking at the cardboard cutouts and they show the, the, the surrounding stadium is completely empty. It feels like a scrimmage. And I know the players are probably doing the best they can, but what, what's your take on the current state of major league baseball and in this kind of weird time? Yeah. I mean, it's gotta be tough. Um, first of all, thank y'all for having me. It's a, an honor to be here with y'all, uh, special friends and, yeah, like you said, Matt, teammates, just for a little bit. Wish it could have been longer. But, um, yeah, I think that's that's got to be tough, right? I mean, we all know what it feels like to be out there on, like, field 13 during spring training, you know, trying to get up enough uh, motivation to get out there and, you know, get to a game-type situation, hype yourself up. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think Major League Baseball is doing the best they can in, in light of the situation, Um you know, the, the cardboard cutouts are kind of funny, but, you know, the, the background noise that they're piping in, when you watch it on TV, it it feels almost normal. Um, but I know for those guys, it's got to be a real challenge. All right, Scott, you know, I um, we've been doing this a little while now, and I am just loving um, this, this opportunity to host a podcast because I get to know more and more about our friends and um, then the people have become good friends. So this has been so fun for me. But I just let's just start from the beginning, and so um, let's talk about little Scott. So what? <laughs> so let's talk about youth baseball and um, the passion that you had as a as a young man pursuing the dream to play in the big leagues. Yeah, so uh, that is true in a lot of senses of the word. Um, <laughs> I was an undersized kid. I was one of those kids that like my birthday's in August, and so my parents went ahead and and let me go ahead, you know, so I was one of the younger kids, and I was a, a late bloomer, so like growing up, I was always one of the smallest kids out there, and, you know, wasn't overly talented in terms of, you know, just didn't have the size, one, but the one thing I think that I had that that set me apart, or at least allowed me to compete at those levels all the way through, you know, Little League, and up into to high school, and ultimately college, um, was just, I was a hard worker, I had a great work ethic, um, you know, my dad taught me at an early age, you know, you got to do something that sets yourself apart. And so, you know, we talk about creating opportunities. I mean, I did that by just being a hustler and being out there just, you know, trying to be the, the first guy in line to do something or, you know, working my tail off, um, whether it was in practice or, you know, preparation for the game. I always wanted to do everything that I could to make myself uh, ready to go out there and perform at, at my highest level. But I mean, I got cut from my freshman team. So, uh, we actually, at that time, we only had JV and varsity at my high school, and I got cut from JV, and I really thought that that was it. And it wasn't until they developed this freshman team, uh, because they had so many guys, uh, they said, you know, we can we can actually field a whole other team. 
And so I was able to join that freshman team. Otherwise, I, I wouldn't have gotten a chance to play then. Um, and then that kind of set the stage for, you know, being able to get make the team um, as a sophomore at a bigger school. But then something unique happened then after my sophomore year. The district actually built another high school. And so I went to the new high school and it didn't have a senior class. So the juniors were basically the seniors. And so there again, you know, another opportunity opened up because there was more spots available on the varsity team. Uh, we actually had a decent little team, made the playoffs that year, but we were just a scrappy group of guys, a couple of standouts, but I didn't even pitch. I mean, I was trying to, you know, squeak in as a second baseman and, you know, I'm hitting like at a 220 clip. I mean, <laughs> nothing impressive by any means. And um, you certainly would not have picked me for probably even a chance to play in college ball, much less the major leagues. So, um, you know, after high school, I ended up walking on at an NAIA school. And I knew the coach and I had actually reached out to him ahead of the season. And I said, look, you know, I'm coming to Concordia, um, would love the opportunity to, to at least try out for you. And he was like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm planning on it. You know, I've heard about you. We had some mutual friends. So, um, so I, yeah, I, I walked on as a, uh, as a freshman on that team, still not really pitching. And, um, and a guy, James Keller, who I credit with a lot of my a future success um, in that man right there because he was able to see something in me and I kind of had a strong arm and I was starting to grow a little bit. Velocity was coming up, but he said, um, you know, I think, you know, you playing third base over here, but I think you could pitch a little bit too. And so he was one of the first ones to put me on the mound and that it was just, you know, an opportunity to, to get some repetition and exposure. And I started learning how to pitch, but um, you know, came up with a split finger kind of all on my own because Mike Scott had thrown it for the Astros and, and I was a you know, fan of his. So all of these things, when I look back, I mean, it just seems like they just really fell into place. Um, along with working hard and creating opportunities, there was a lot of opportunities that just came my way. And I look back on that and think, you know, that was nothing other than God um, directing and guiding my path, because then ultimately that led to me going to a Division One school my junior year I transferred in. And um, hit this growth spurt, you know, really came together for me mechanically on the mound. All of a sudden, I'm throwing mid-90s, and I get a look in front of some scouts, get drafted, and here we go, start your professional career. And, I mean, all of this was just a complete whirlwind to me because, again, graduating from high school, I thought that that would be the extent of my baseball career. So you weren't voted most athletic in your high school <laughs> I was voted most unlikely to succeed in the baseball field. <laughs> so tell me, so, like, so you probably even when you got to, to Concordia and they put you on the mound, it's probably what eighty-five, maybe. Yeah, like so eighty-three, going, I think. Going from eighty-three to to the mid to high nineties. What like listening to kids, and I get a lot of kids that say, "Well, how do I how do I get arm strength? How do I increase my velocity?" And outside of you know a little bit of getting stronger and older, what are some things you think? Uh, would benefit or helped you go from 83 to 95, six and, and, you know, in a, in a small window, right. Probably a yeah. six year window, you went from throwing low eighties to mid nineties. Yeah. I was a big fan of long toss. So I was always throwing. I love to throw, you know, even uh, later on in the big leagues, uh, Trevor Hoffman used to kid me because he was like, man, you got to save your bullets. You're out here throwing all the time but I was the guy that would love to get out in the outfield and just throw from foul pole to foul pole. And really what it did was it, it strengthened my arm one. 
but it helps weed out some bad uh, habits too, because you really cannot get, and you know, this is an outfielder. I mean, you can't get carry on a ball unless you're behind that ball and really reaching out, getting extension. Um, so that's, I think that, that served me well, but a lot of core strength too. I mean, I'm, I'm not a big guy. I mean, I'm six one. Um, I wasn't an overly big guy when I played. I mean, maybe we had a, well, you still got all your muscles, Matt, but I've lost mine since playing days, but, <laughs> but, um, you know, it, it was more for me about the core strength and I, I wasn't like a big leg guy. I mean, I was kind of lanky, but, um, you know, having that core strength was so key. And, and when I went to the white Sox, um, I think I actually even increased in velocity a little bit because we had this super intensive core program with uh, weighted balls and, um, you know, using cables to, to really build up that core. So, you know, that's what I tell kids all the time now is your arm, you don't throw with your arm. Your arm is just a lever that holds the ball, but really where you generate your powers in your middle section. And so, you know, I would encourage kids to try to build up that middle. That's real good. All right, Scott, let's talk about, so you get to the big leagues and let's talk about your first game real quick, because now Matt and I are, this matters more to Matt than me. Actually, I missed his very first major league game, but that's not, we're not telling our story. We're telling your story. So anyway, but just tell us what, it, what you remember about your very first game in the big leagues. Well, first of all, I think, Maddie, I think I might have been there for your first big league game. Because I remember when you came up with Colorado and I remember all the hype. Yeah. I, I think I got on the on-deck circle. Uh-huh. I didn't play and then we traveled to St. Louis that night and then I got the, the next game the next day, yeah. I definitely remember you hitting a home run off me to right field. So, <laughs> yeah. so we have history. Um, but yeah, but my first game, um, you know, again, this was all kind of a whirlwind because when I got up to the to pro ball, um, I had a couple of years. I, I kind of advanced quickly, went to double A my second year of pro ball. Um, and then I kind of got stuck there because I had an injury and I had to come back and repeat that level um, and work my way back. Well, after that year, after that injury year, um, I actually made the 40 man roster and then went to triple A out of spring training was like the last cut in spring training, which, you know, it was a, a thrill just to be up there in that major league clubhouse with, and I'm with the Giants, so I'm with guys like Barry Bonds and Jeff Kent and Rob Nen. I mean, these guys that, you know, seemed like they were 20 years older than me and, you know, 40 pounds bigger. And I'm thinking, how in the world am I going to compete with these guys? Um, but I went to AAA, and literally two weeks into the season, they had a couple of injuries, and I got called up. And I still remember my AAA manager telling me, hey, you're going to the big leagues. And I was, I mean, I was like, you got to be kidding me. I think that was my words to him. Like me, really? Yeah. <laughs> but um, but yeah, I went up there and and got a chance to pitch. And I remember running out onto the field for that first time. And I don't know that Maddie, I know you played there a bunch too. But that that um, park in San Francisco, it's just to me, it was never really a comfortable park. I mean, it's always cold, it's always windy, and you know, there's a lot of fans that are all yelling at you. And um, I don't know, I just. I, Maybe it was that I could never shake that first experience of running out on a major league field. But I just I remember going out there and my feet not even hitting the ground and getting to the mound and just being completely overwhelmed by the moment because there was always, you know, 40,000 plus people at that stadium. And uh, just looking around being like, I cannot believe that I'm here right now. And um, and I tell people all the time, like, I'm glad it was something that I practiced over and over again because it was that muscle memory that literally took over in that moment because my mind was not thinking about, you know, okay, you just got to breathe. You got to, 
you know, make sure and stay back and balanced and reach out, throw strikes. Like, I don't even know what I was thinking. I was just like, my body took over and somehow I got three outs and got out of the inning. And I remember coming back and sitting in the dugout, just thinking, holy cow, I hope I don't have to do that again. (laughs) (laughs) So you're with the Giants and then, uh, and you had a really long career. So we won't, make this like a four hour podcast or anything, but if you were to have a hot, some highlights of guys you played with and experiences you had, um, where would you start in that? Man? Well, um, certainly that, that San Francisco team was special. Just, you know, some of those guys that I've already mentioned, but, um, you know, getting, I got traded to the Astros. Um, and that was a thrill because that was a team that I grew up. I grew up in Texas and, I always loved Nolan Ryan, um, you know, so I rooted for him, of course, was an Astros fan. So getting to put on that uniform and walking into the clubhouse and two of the first guys you meet are Jeff Bagwell and Craig Biggio, um, you know, that was surreal in itself. And I, I even told Biggio, I was like, hey, I think I have a picture of you and I'm like seven years old and you're a rookie and I'm on the field with you. But uh, yeah, he laughed about that. Um but yeah, that was, I mean, I learned a lot from those guys. Uh, Jeff Bagwell was the consummate professional. Um, he was a guy that if you wanted to know, you know, how to do it, you just go ask him. Um, he was, he was a great leader, uh, a guy that led by example too, and just a, just a hard nosed ball player. Um, going to San Diego then, um, being around Trevor Hoffman. I mean, he was a, a guy that I really looked up to and, and learned a lot from. He taught me a lot about the mental side of the game. Um, about taking thoughts that creep into your head, which they always do for us. Um, you know, we like, we, we may look like we have it all together and we're composed when we're out there, but you know, there's times where you're thinking, you know, all the negative thoughts that you could possibly think are coming into your head at the same time. Trevor was the one that taught me, you know, just pretend like you're writing those thoughts on a piece of paper, crumble them up and throw them away. And I actually would see him do that. Like he'd be on the mound and I'd see him like crumple his hand and like toss it like that. And that's what he was doing. So, um, you know, just I I really started to learn about the mental side of the game and seeing what separates, you know, good guy. Because everybody that goes to the the major leagues, I mean, you're in the top, top of the top of the top of the heap. Um, But what separates the good guys from the great guys and the great guys from the Hall of Famers is just their ability to deal with the 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 uh, the slumps. Right. I mean, we're all going to go through slumps, but you know, how long you stay in that slump is a, a testament to, to your mental fortitude. But um, yeah, and then, you know, I, I would say another highlight just finishing up the last two years of my career, I got to play for the Atlanta Braves and the St. Louis Cardinals. And both of those teams were teams that I just really respected. Um, that that last year, honestly, being with you, Maddie, over there and, and Adam Wainwright, and Lance Berkman and some of these guys that I just, uh, you know, had played against for a while, but really just respected because of their faith and just the way they carried themselves. And, and just the Cardinals in general, just the brand is, is such a respected brand. Um, it was really a privilege to put on that uniform, even if it was just for a little while. So as you're winding down your career, you know, and, and thinking about what's next, and, and talking about maybe how you finished college and went back and finished college. What, at what point in your career do you think you, you start to think about what, what, what post playing looks like? Cause I was talking, we were talking about this, I think just yesterday. And I, I think as a player, sometimes you're so locked into your process and like you're working out, and like you don't even really ever think about 
I think, I guess in, in your mind, it's like you're training to play forever. You know, you think you're going to, you know, not, you, you know, you're not going to, but I, I guess what, what point did you think, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm gonna not going to play anymore. And, and as athletes, and, and at least for me, like, I'm not just going to also sit around and I'm done. Like, I don't have, I don't have a lot of hobbies. Like I'm going to have to do something. And um, so what, what point did you think, and even thinking about finishing college and, and what's next? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, you know, I remember um, sitting in those union meetings, and I don't know why I remember this from a union meeting, but you would always have a guy stand up and say, you know, you're going to be a, a former player a lot longer than you are a current player. And not that I was in any way disenfranchised or ungrateful for my experience, but I mean, as you know, Matt, like, I mean, you, you play 10, 12 years, like you start to wonder, I mean, is this ever going to stop? Um, and it, I mean, it's, it's exhausting at times. I mean, it's hard to raise a family when you're on the road. I mean, you guys know better than anybody dragging kids around and, you know, setting up shop at a new, new city and learning that city, learning a new team, you know, after a while, I mean, I I got, I was fortunate enough to play for seven different organizations, but at the same time, I, I look back on that and just, it makes me tired to think about it. Um, so, you know, getting there toward the end, I remember hearing that and thinking, okay, yeah, great. When is that? When is that coming? Cause I'm kind of ready like to, to transition out. But at the same time, I remember being scared because I didn't know how that transition was going to take place. And I mean, I had had, you know, a couple of slumps there toward the end. Um, one with Atlanta in particular, you know, I had this like month where I couldn't get anybody out. And so you start to think like, is this the beginning of the end? Is this what it looks like? I mean, do I just go out there and just stink for a whole season? And then, you know, they take the uniform off. And I remember hearing guys say that all the time. Like I'm playing until they rip the uniform off me. And I'm thinking, you know, I'd, I'd kind of like to go out with a little bit of grace. I mean, I'd like to strike my last guy out or, <laughs> you know, win a world series or something like that. Um, so I, I think again, that was a way that, that God really, um, blessed me. I think he prepared me for that. And a lot of it came through the PAO conference um, in knowing that, you know, there's a lot of things. I mean, this is a unique window, but we have to make sure that we're preparing for what's next. Um, So, you know, whether it be financial or, you know, with family um, or with, you know, where we were going to live or setting that lifestyle, um, they helped us prepare for that a lot. And I would say we were in a much better position when it came because of that conference and that teaching that we had. Um, but, you know, God also allowed and this is going to sound funny, but he, he allowed me to exit on something that really wasn't my terms. Um, and it was an injury. And it was you know literally a physical thing where I could not pitch anymore as much as I tried. And I, I went through rehab for you know several months and then uh, ended up getting released and was thinking, well, maybe I just need some time off and then going and having the surgery and coming back and still feeling like, man, there's nothing there. I mean, it's just, it's not responding. Um, and, and knowing that, you know, the writing was probably on the wall being in my mid thirties. I mean, guys just don't play forever. So, um, I was able to walk away from the game with peace, knowing that I gave it my all. Um, I tried as best I could. I used the talents that God gave me and, you know, fell into a wonderful opportunity, but, but I left with no regrets. That's so good. All right. I want to ask you two things. And then I want to talk about, um, about what you're doing now, because what you're doing now is really exciting to me and I can't wait to hear you explain. So you've used the word compete several times over, um, this conversation, whether you realize it or not, I've been writing it down 
And so anyway, how would you define that? So as parents that are raising young athletes, I, we, you hear it all the time. Like you're sitting in the stands and you hear parents yelling, just compete. Da, da, da. And it seems like, talk to me about that as somebody that would, I mean, I feel like your career is, I mean, you had to compete to get to where you were and have the success mm-hmm. that you had. And so talk to me about how you would define that word. Yeah, that's a great question, Leslie. Um, I would define competing as just that attitude of never say die. Like we are just going to, we're going to max out the chance that we have right here. And even if it looks like the cards are completely stacked against us, you know, we're going to go out there and we're going to do it. And we're going to, you know, with a high degree of confidence that what we have done uh, has a good chance for success because we've seen it work before. I tell this story. I was telling this just the other day. I was actually part of a baseball game. I was on the wrong end of it, by the way. Uh, but I was with the Astros. We were playing the Pirates. We had them beat seven to two, no, I'm sorry, nine to two. We had a seven run lead in the bottom of the ninth inning. It was at their place, but we had two outs with nobody on base and the Pirates came back and won that game. And I couldn't believe it. I mean, it was just like base hit, base hit, then a string of walks, big hit. Brian Giles comes up and hits a a walk-off home run. And, I mean, of course, we're crushed, um, mad, you know, confused, whatever the – pick your emotion. Um, But that's that's the great thing about baseball is you don't have a clock. And as long as you have a strike available – I mean, Matty, I mean, my goodness, the the 2011 World Series that the Cardinals won, I mean, with the big hits by Freeze and by Lance to tie it up. I mean, I remember watching that just going, I cannot believe that the Cardinals are winning this game. so, yeah, I mean, it's as long as you have a strike left, as long as you have, um, you know, anything, I mean, you have you have the ability to win the fight. Um, I, I love reading military books, too. And that that's one of the lines that comes from the book Lone Survivor is you're never out of the fight. Um, no matter how uh, bad things look, no matter how, you know, uh, defeated you may feel, as long as you've got a strike left, you've got an opportunity. That's incredible. I love that. All right, Scott, let's talk about Water Mission and and the opportunity that you've had to serve such a neat, neat organization. So give us the details on Water Mission. Yeah. So Water Mission is a group that I was introduced to by uh, our mutual friend, Don Christensen. And he heard about this group because the founders, George and Molly Green, spoke at one of his conferences. And uh, he said, I think you guys should check them out. And I think he told several of his clients to look at them. Um, But I I just I love the idea of water, of giving people water. Um, But then I found out that they were a Christian organization. And with each water project, they're not just um, helping people with water and sanitation, but they're also giving them messages of hope, hope for the future, hope in the gospel. And so I loved I mean, that checked a lot of boxes for us. So um, Kelly and I got involved and this was like right at when we retired from baseball. And, And at the time I was actually going back to school. Um, I think y'all actually asked me about this earlier and I never answered it, but um, but I did go back to school after I graduated or after I, I retired. And um, and I had, you know, another three semesters and, and went to class, sat in the classroom. And I mean, I almost quit guy. after the first that guy in the front row. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. They thought I was the professor when I first walked, walked in. <laughs> but uh, but yeah. Um, so it was during that time that I was going to school. Um, we got involved and we supported a project over in Uganda. And it was a a special project for me because uh, Molly, the founder of the organization, she sent me a picture and she was over there hugging on this person that had leprosy. 
And it, I mean, my first thought was, my goodness, I mean, this is like a, a picture of what Jesus would do. And then I heard the story about how this hospital was tending to lepers, you know, who were cast out of society, just like we read about in the Bible. Um, and they did not have safe water to give these people. They were actually getting sick because of the water that they were drinking was contaminated. And so Water Mission was invited to come in and put in these systems that would filter the water, make it safe to drink. And then they went over there and, and shared love with them. And Molly's hugging on people. And I was just I was completely uh, fixed in, in what they were doing. I said, I want to be more a part of this. And so uh, we followed that up with a, a Haiti project. And then they invited Molly actually invited Kelly and I to come over to Haiti. And at first, I mean, I was very tentative to do that. You know, we had young kids at that point and Kelly was thinking, well, are, are we both going to go over there? I mean, what if something happens to us? I mean, <laughs> we were do, you know, doing all these scenarios and, and I said, uh, you know, let's just go. I said, it's a leap of faith for sure, but, but I want to see it. And we went over there and I mean, I was just completely amazed after seeing it, seeing the transformational impact that it has on these communities that, that have so little or nothing um, and just to see how it was naturally opening up opportunities to share the gospel. And we had been on another mission trip and I felt like it was so forced. It was like, you know, they they had you stand up and, you know, share your testimony. And then there would say this group prayer and we would, you know, count the people that prayed and bowed their heads. And, you know, that was the number of salvations. And I'm thinking that can't be how it works. Like it's got to be a little bit more, you know, engaging than that. And so seeing how this happened, how, we, you know, first we delivered the water and we gained the trust by giving them water. Then it was an opportunity and building relationships. And then it was an opportunity later on after we had done all this work and showed them what we were all about, that they asked the question, why would you do this? And then we got to share, well, this is why we do it, because the, the Bible calls us to love our neighbor as ourselves. And we believe that that means for us giving people the same water here in Haiti that we would expect back in the United States. So I just, I love the way that so organically came together. And uh, it was shortly after that, that they, uh, they offered me a job. And I, and you know, this is another one of those opportunities that came up that I was like, I, I don't know. I don't think so. I mean, I'm, y'all are in Charleston. They're based out of Charleston, South Carolina. And we were here in Texas and I talked to Kelly about it. And she said, there's no way we're moving again. Like you've already dragged me around the country with baseball. So I knew that wasn't a possibility, but but I went to work for them, you know, just right here in Texas. So um, now I get to take other people into the field and show them the work that they're a part of and share opportunities uh, with them. And, you know, one of the things that I have seen in, in giving just in general is just such a great way to to give of the the natural tendencies that we have of the world. I mean, and I'm I'm guilty of it as anybody of, you know, getting caught up in the things of this world and wanting to to, you know, whether it's a bigger house or a bigger car or whatever, like those are the things that we think are going to satisfy us, uh, but they never do. And it's it's only through giving through kingdom work like this, like the work with Water Mission. And we've been involved with other things, Bible translation and and medical um, care and orphan care, things like that. That's the kind of stuff that really lights my fire and gives me a, a passion. And that's why I love sharing opportunities with other people too, because I love seeing that same passion, that light go on in their eyes too, when they realize that they're a part of this. Why don't you tell listeners maybe how they can get involved? Is there a, is there a website or is there somewhere they can go to read more about getting involved with water missions? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I appreciate the chance to, to give a, a shameless plug, but 
it's just uh, watermission.org is a great way to go, just go check it out. Um, go look at the website. There's some great videos. There's chances to give, chances to pray, uh, to advocate. I mean, we're looking for partners. That's what I love, too, is we're not just looking for people to, to write a check or to give a monthly gift. Like, we really want to engage people. We want them to, again, be involved in, at a deeper level and really see that, that benefit of, of what the, uh, the product of their giving is. But what's your favorite way you've experienced God on the mission field? Or a specific oh, man. story that might stand out? Yeah. Um, well, so this last November, we actually got to go to Uganda. And um, we went to a refugee settlement, um, an area that we are serving refugees that were coming over from South Sudan that had been involved in just some terrible situations. There's a civil war still going on over there. Um and sitting with those refugees, and I mean, they would they facilitated it for us to, to where we could sit in the camp, like in front of their little huts, and we would sit in a circle. And a lot of times we had to have a translator, uh, but just listening to the stories of these people, and most of them women, I think 85% of the people that come into camp are women and children. And this one lady in particular, her name was Mary, and she told us about how her husband was literally killed right in front of her. He was a pastor. Um, she grabbed her kids and fled, like literally with, with whatever they could carry. They just had to leave quickly. Houses were burning. There's gunshots. And they just ran. And they spent three weeks in the African wilderness um, walking, you know, and trying to avoid roads. So they're walking through the back country. And they finally arrived at the border to be picked up and taken to this refugee settlement. And then, you know, she talked about um, how God had protected her through this time. And she I mean, she literally has a smile on her face. that's just beaming. And I'm thinking, like, how can this lady have so much joy in the midst of the pain that she just experienced? And I mean, she was just so quick to point to her faith and how, you know, very easily could have gone another way. And she you know, knew a lot of people that that were not so fortunate. And so she chose to look at the the positive things in her life. And I just remember thinking, wow, you need to come to the United States and tell us your story because, you know, we can get bogged down with a lot of other first world problems. But, um, you know, for her to maintain that perspective and that faith in the midst of such trial and suffering. But, you know, that's what I've learned is that that's that's when we give God opportunities to really show up when we put ourselves in those vulnerable situations. And we just say, God, I need you. I need you to to show up right here. And then we know that when he does show up, that it's by no doing of our own that we were out of that situation. It was totally him. All right, Scott, on the way out, mutual friend, yeah. Bergman, tell me your favorite Lance Bergman story. Um, it'd be just a good oh, one. Man. Kind of wrap, wrap it up. You, you spend more time probably now than I do with him, but uh, <laughs> if you know Lance, you've got a story. And so give me your favorite Lance Bergman story. Yeah, I, man. I mean, some of my favorites of his are the stories he tells, and and he, you know, his thing is you always got to have a, a fake injury ready to throw out there, like in case you really screw up bad on the field. And the one that the one that he tells about how he was facing this really tough lefty at Wrigley Field in a day game, and he he's like, I couldn't even see the ball, and it's like a big situation, tie ball game, two runners on, he's up. And he said, this guy throws a fastball like 95 right at his face. And he's he just bails out, you know, his helmet falls off, drops his bat, you know, yard sale, equipment flying everywhere. And uh, 
And right away, you know, he's, he's about to pick himself back up. And he said, the umpire like throws up his hands. And he said, I, th- I think that ball hit him. And so Lance hears that and immediately falls back down because he's like, the only way I'm getting on base is if I get hit by a pitch. <laughs> and so he like fakes this whole thing. The trainer comes out, like does the eye test with the, the light, you know, and he's like tracking with him. And <laughs> he said he kind of wobbles down to first base and he gets a standing ovation. And, uh, you know, of course, there's no replay at Wrigley back then because they didn't have a big screen. But then they realize soon from the TVs up on the concourse that uh, that he's completely pulled one over on the Cubs fans and everybody starts booing. <laughs> but he he stays on base. I mean, there's no replay. You know, that was back in the good old days. So he stays on base. They end up scoring like three runs that inning. And <laughs> he uh, he ends up being a hero. So I just I love it. That's amazing. He's a peach. That land. He is. A lot of characters we've met in this game. Oh, that's, I mean, the story <laughs> are unending with him. And then in general, you know, just unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of fun, Lots of fun, fun memories. That's for sure. I'm oh, yeah. I miss it, or I do miss it. Anyway. All right, Scott, thanks so much for doing this with us. It's such a, such a joy to have you on and visit with you and catch up. Tell Kelly we said, I, and if she wants to ever come on, we would love to have the two of you. <laughs> yes. I'll try to drag her in. She, she's more, I mean, I love y'all's podcast too, the table 40 idea and sitting at a table. She would be more for sitting at an actual table and having a conversation than, than putting it on a podcast. So oh, yeah. maybe, oh, yeah. maybe when this, uh, this thing ends, we can start having real conversations. Instead of- I would love that. In person. Yes. We miss our friends. It'll be good. Yeah. All right, Scott, thank you so much again, and um, and we'll post Matt. Will, I don't have Twitter. I'm not cool enough for that, but Matt will put a Twitter, whatever you do, link to water mission, because I love it. I'm super, super excited. Well, thank you all. Y'all are wonderful partners, and it's a pleasure to walk with you in this uh, journey. Thank you for listening to Table 40, part of the Sports Spectrum Podcast Network. For more stories on sports and faith, check out sportspectrum.com.